when a when a metric becomes a target, it, it ceases to be a, a metric. Um, so if you're if you're just focusing on quote unquote growth, more members, more of this, more of that, you kind of get into this doom loop of okay, well we have this this let's you put it on a club for for example, you're in St. Louis, you know for example, and let's say you know we have we have 50 new members in St. Louis overnight. Not one of them owns a horse, not one of them owns a polo mallet, a saddle, anything like that. So now you need this huge infrastructure and ecosystem to support those 50 members. Howdy, and welcome to Horse People, a podcast diving into the stories behind some of the world's everyday questions. My goal is to weave a narrative about entrepreneurs, equine professionals, and horseback riders alike, and the stories about the lives they've built. I'm your host, Gideon Kutkowski. Uh, my name is Justin Powers. I'm the executive director of the Polo Development Division for the United States Polo Association, and I have been working for the USPA for, it'll be, you look at it, it'll be, it was 11 years, uh, like two weeks ago, so over a decade. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. How did you even get started uh, working for the USPA? So I, uh, I I always wanted to work in polo work, you know, for the USPA, for the PTF, for uh, one of the larger clubs. I went to school for sports management at a school outside of Pittsburgh called Robert Morris University. Uh, and then, you know, that was kind of the plan was to work into polo uh, after or during during college, I kind of had a little bit of a moment where I wanted to uh, go save the world a little bit. Um, so I went to grad school for public administration, nonprofit management, uh, focused in innovation and public education, and, which is an oxymoron a little bit. Uh, but I w- so I moved to D.C. after grad school, worked for a consulting firm, actually did some oil and gas work, which I know you in Texas, you, you know a thing or two about oil and gas. Uh, and then, um, sorry, I dropped something. Um, and then got a call one day from, um, uh, a lady by the name of Chris Bowman, who asked me to come work for her as the uh, club development coordinator in ESPA. So I started out traveling. I think I went to my first couple of years, I went to 120 some polo clubs in the country. So I, I traveled a lot starting out and, um, just really kind of getting my feet wet, understanding the clubs, the different dynamics, um, you know, what they, what are some pitfalls, quote unquote, to use a buzzword bingo term uh, in, you know, the sport at the club level. So, and then from there, I just kept working my way up. And now I work uh, in polo development. We we oversee club development, uh, youth polo, interscholastic intercollegiate, which you participated in. Um, with the sweep, I remember the uh, the broom in Santa Barbara. Uh, uh, yeah, we have a young American development program. We have a uh, youth out grass tournament. We do a lot of different functions in polo development. Oh, that's awesome! That's uh, that's so interesting. How did how did the transition go from you know working oil and gas, working all these different jobs, and then you get the call from uh, who, who was it? Some something. Uh, it was Chris, her name is Chris Brum, Chris Bowman. Sorry. Chris Bowman, you get the call from Chris Bowman and she says, come work for us. Like, why did you say yes at that point? Uh, I was living in D.C. and I I honestly kind of was I was only in D.C. for two years and I was pretty much fed up with um, D.C. and everything. (laughs) And um, that's a that's a very uh, uh, sort of looking for. That's a uh, redacted version. (laughs) Uh, And and I kind of was just like, I don't know, I mean. Other people probably went through this. You probably went through this when you were in your early twenties. Is like I was like, man, this is so awesome. I'm making I'm making so much money 
Um, and then I wasn't making any money. I was kind of broke. To be honest with you. Uh, and I don't know. I just kind of was like, you know, I can be working in horses and, you know, working with horses and doing things I love and, um, you know, spending time with my family because my family's all in the horse business too and not have to deal with the nonsense of Washington bureaucrats. So, um, so yeah, I just kind of like made the switch. I, I will say a lot of the stuff I learned on Capitol Hill and working for consulting firms, uh, two consulting firms in particular, I worked for a veterans organization and then also the oil and gas. They, they do actually help me a lot um, in the USPA. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about is, you know, the USPA is kind of has 4,500 members. So, um, you know, it's the equivalent to a three stoplight town. Um, it's a small town, you know, small community, very fraternal. Um, you've experienced that probably, you know, kind of that small town politics. Yeah, there's some politics involved in Polo and just kind of, you know, focusing in on, you know, it's we're quick these days to send an email and just be like, well, I sent you an email about it. Um, I've always tried to approach it on like, hey, pick up the phone, call them. Let's actually like hear what their concerns are. If it's if it's an issue that's, you know, someone's upset with something, you know, you can usually, you know, work to common ground because, you know, again, the, we're all polo players. We all share a passion for the sport, for horses. And, you know, so a lot of that was things I kind of learned on the fly, so to speak, in DC, working for a consulting firms, stuff like that. Wow. Yeah. Nice. And it's true, isn't it? Like, there's uh, some politics involved in polo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, politics is probably a, a overused term. I and mean, there's dynamics, you know, it's, dynamics it's uh, you know, every club has them, um, you know, and some clubs have them more than others. You know, I, I tell a lot of clubs that if people are complaining about the umpires are a little hot underneath the collar after a polo game, it means you're actually playing real polo and you're having fun and, and it's competitive. If no one's complaining, then, uh, you know, it's it's more probably just practice polo and um, and people are laid back. And there's definitely a spot for that in the in the polo world. And there's places that, you know, do that. But um, it kind of comes with the territory. I mean, if no one complained about anything, I wouldn't probably have a job because it would be running perfectly, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That's uh, that's a good that's a good story. You mentioned that the the your first job at, at the polo at the USPA was like traveling a lot, meeting a bunch of the clubs and like learning a little bit about the pitfalls at that time, almost a decade ago, like what were some of the things, what were some of the challenges then? And then uh, I have a follow-up, but we can start there. Well, I think, I think one of the challenges back then and, and um, you know, USPA, we've been blessed with the uh, support from the royalties from our clothing line, which I should be wearing right now. And I'll probably get dinged for that in some capacity, but uh, I'm wearing Yukon polo because it's cold in my office. Um, but, you know, I think back then, one of the things that we were really kind of not struggling with, what, but was um, people were always thinking about developing the sport in terms of growing it, growing, growing. We need to grow polo. Um, you know, I think this is not just specific to polo. I think it's specific to any, you know, grassroots efforts. The term grow can be dangerous. Um, there's a board member, actually, you know, his, his mom, Stevie Orthwine, said the Ginny Orthwine's son told me there's, he told me about this. It's called Goodhart's Law, which is something like along the lines of when a, when a metric becomes a target, it, it ceases to be a, a metric. Um, so if you're, 
if you're just focusing on quote unquote growth, more members, more of this, more of that, um, you kind of get into this doom loop of, okay, well, we have, you know, this, this, let's you put it on a club for, for example, you're in St. Louis, you know, for example, and let's say, you know, we have, we have 50 new members in St. Louis overnight. Not one of them owns a horse, not one of them owns a polo mallet, a saddle, anything like that. So now you need this huge infrastructure and ecosystem to support those 50 members. Whereas if you said, hey, we got five members and they all own two horses, you know, now you don't need the same ecosystem of lease horses and things like that to, uh, to support it. And, you know, then you have the fundamental discussion of what's, what's better there, you know, and I think back 10 years ago, and I was guilty of this as well. I was like, well, obviously 50, because we want to bring 50 more people into the sport. The reality is, is success in, in polo in the development aspect um, it's measured in ones and twos, you know, like getting one or two people that are, you know, crazy about the sport can committed to horse ownership, you know, that want to be horsemen and women is more important than bringing in, you know, hundreds of people that may take one lesson and never, um, you know, never look at it ever again. So I remember one of the things, um, when I first started the big fad at the time was, oh, every polo club should do a group on lesson. And I don't know, do you even, you're, you're young. You remember Groupon? Yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you don't even hear about Groupon anymore. Like no one does Groupon anymore. I couldn't even tell you one thing. Last time I heard the word Groupon was, you know, a few years ago. And, and, and again, it's like that whole tire kicker, like, let's do this bucket list thing. You know, it's a great at bringing people to the door, but it's not great at bringing people through the door into the sport. That's a really interesting comment you, that you made, right? Like it's a really good way to get people in the door, but not through it. Mm-hmm. Like there's a difference between getting one lesson and becoming a horse person. <laughs> um, what, what lies in the middle, right? Like how do you turn that one lesson into a, someone who becomes a, a polo player who, you know, becomes super passionate about it, that they buy a horse, they buy their mallets, they, you know, they get into it. Is, is does that make, does that? Yeah, no. So I think there's, there's a lot of different people that try, you know, that get into the sport, uh, you know, and I, and just to use some, some off the cuff statistics a couple of years ago, I looked and there was like 65% of the USPA membership had joined, uh, since I had been hired. Um, now I'm not, I, I'm not saying that I'm responsible for that, but what I'm saying is that means that the majority of the people, USPA members are not third generation polo players like myself, you know? And so, you know, you you really have to look at who are those people coming in, you know, the big groups of them are, you know, obviously you're going to have a lot of kids, a lot of youth um, coming through the Knights program, middle school tournaments, uh, interscholastic, intercollegiate. And I I use youth as like 22 and below. You have people that are coming into it. A lot of women are joining um, the sport at, you know, there's, it's actually kind of funny. People, you'll hear people say, you know, women are the largest growing sector of um, the sport or of equestrian sports in general. Well, there's not a lot of like sectors to choose from, you know, between gender. So, like, of course, it's going to be like one of the largest. Um, but that's a, that's another topic. Uh, and you know, so you have you have women coming in, and then you have you know you have businessmen and women, and you have people that are have a significant number, you know a significant level of means that want to do it and do it big. 
And I think all of that, all those um, groups of people, while they might not intersect on like the social, economic, or demographic um, planes, I guess would be one word to say, we want to try to intersect them on their commitment to horses and horsemanship and um, from day one. And I think that's something that we have been stressing in the SPA is doesn't matter if you own one horse, you own a hundred horses or your cambiasa and you're cloning a hundred horses you want to commit to horsemanship and the quicker you realize that the, the, the further you're going to get in the sport and, you know, distance is not measured on kind of goal level, which for people that don't follow polo, we have a rating system, but you know, it's really like, you know, just, just your own self appreciation of where you are in the sport. And so stressing the horsemanship aspect is, is big. And, and you and I talked about this before, you know, Horsemanship is sometimes thought of being in the saddle strictly. And it's like, oh, that person's a great horseman or woman. And, you know, I have always tried to think about it as, yes, it's in the saddle, but like, it's also out of the saddle too. You know, it's in the barn. It's understanding your horses, understanding kind of that they're animals, you know, that they have fight or flight syndromes um, or whatever it's called, defense mechanisms. And, um, and knowing that like, you know, again, I'll, I'll get dinged for uh, some other disciplines are saying this, that, you know, locking up a human being in a phone booth for 23 hours a day, they'd throw you in jail, you know? So, um, and we, we, in the equestrian world, people do that routinely and think like, I don't know why my horse is so high strung and, you know, have anxiety and stuff like that. It's like, well, they've been sitting in a box for 23 hours. So, um, so things like that. I mean, and, you know, one of the greatest tools, for horsemanship, in my opinion, it's also one of the most dangerous tools is YouTube, um, because you want to learn, you want to learn something about, you know, whether it's, man, I wonder if my farrier is actually like doing a good job or are they just charging me $120 to, you know, hack the horse's hoof off and nail a shoe on. You can get on YouTube and you can watch farrier videos until you're blue in the face. Um, same with bidding videos and hay nutrition, stuff like that. And so, you know, it's, there's really no excuse now for someone to be, and I don't mean this term negatively, like an ignorant horse owner. Um, mm -hmm. they, they, you know, they, they can get information, they can seek it out. Um, you know, in the polo community, we're also very open to sharing information. You know, I think one of the things that's interesting now compared to in the sport compared to, let's say, you know, the fifties, sixties is there's, you know, you're in, you're in, uh, you're in St. Louis, but you also were in Texas for a while. And San Antonio had one of the largest polo clubs in, in the world at one point, Rotama. And it was a club, you know, like people went to the club barns, they went to the club barbecues, they went to the club practices, they rode on the club track. So if you were a young kid at Rotama and you went out and you had a horse that's, you know, had thrown its head around and, and, you know, going crazy you know, you, there's, there's potential to have one of, you know, some of the best players in the world right there next to you to say, Hey, Gideon, like, you know, Hey, you have way too much bit on this horse or you have draw range. It's over flexing, stuff like that. Um, that club, you know, kind of that, that, um, protection of the masses or that herd mentality used to, used to be prevalent. It still exists in polo. Um, but it's not as prevalent because the facilities now are kind of, you know, private, you know, just because land development 
Mm. You know, you see where it used to have like a centralized club and fields around it. You now have maybe one field here, one field 45 minutes away, and people are just meeting to play in matches or club practices. Um, so I think that's something we've always tried to kind of talk about. How do we, you know, reinvigorate that the, those communal aspects of horsemanship, you know, just sitting around having a beer, talking about horses. Um, it's, it's something it's very important, I think. Totally. Sport. Yeah. And, you know, it reminds me like the best times, uh, my, my best memories at Polo are always, you know, sure that a lot of them are on the saddle, but most of them are actually, you know, the barbecue after or like uh, Sunday morning when after the, the practice, every, someone brought beers and you're just like chilling on the grass, having a good time, you know, um, which, which makes me think that Polo is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Polo feels like a unique sport within the equestrian ecosystem because it's so fraternal it's so familial right like when I moved to St. Louis I didn't know anyone and the first people I reached out to were the I like sent an email to the St. Louis Polo Club and said hey my name is Gideon I played at AM, and uh and I'm moving to St. Louis I don't know anyone like can someone tell me where where I should be looking for apartments <laughs> yeah and of course, someone reached back out, they connect me with someone and, you know, they helped me like navigate that process. And then once I got to St. Louis, I was here in August and September, there was charity matches. I went, I volunteered and people like really, you know, bring you in. And same thing happened in, in Norway with uh, Nick May. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever met him, the Norwegian. Polo. I didn't, first, first I heard they had polo in Norway. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he was actually on the pot early, um, one of the first few guests. Oh, interesting. Um, Norwegian Polo Club, like same thing. I moved to Oslo and reached out to him and he brought me in with open arms. And I, I don't know if it's the same in other sports because polo is, well, polo is so so connected in a lot of ways. Yeah, to put it, I mean, to put it back into kind of the equine aspect, specific to equine sports, you know, a lot of other, and, and, and I apologize to all your listeners, Gideon, that do dressage, hunter jumpers and everything. I'm not bashing your sports, but a lot of the stuff that they do in other disciplines is very unnatural to horses. Uh, you know, I always say like, if you, if you watch the horses out in the wild and there was a three, you know, a, a 1.6 meter log in a, in a field with room on either side of it, they're going to run around. They're not going to jump. Around. Um, and they're, they're going to be in a herd, you know, like the horse that's out there by themselves is out there by themselves for, for a reason. And I think because polo is, you know, obviously, you know, four on four on outdoor and, and three on three in the arena with a couple umpires, because every chucker is, you know, a herd, it's a herd. You have to, it takes people to play polo, you know, like you can't play by yourself. Um, you know, I think that's one of the things that actually getting it back to the clubs, we've, we've seen clubs over the course of history of polo in the u.s you know fragment out because two people have gotten into a fight and one person says well i'm gonna go down the road and play you know here and um you know and then they quickly realize it's like well it's just me and my kids sticking balling because no one wants to come play here or blah 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 so you know we kind of we we need each other to be able to put on you know a, a decent match you know and uh, or put on a match at all and, and again, I, I think it's kind of that, that herd mentality of you, you're someone that I'm, I'm guessing, you know, St. Louis hasn't really 
experienced that um, too much where it's like somebody played in college, you know, played for a, a you know, obviously a two-time national champion program in your school, you know, um, just show up in St. Louis and say, Hey, I want to get involved. And, and there's also the, you know, there's also the aspect of, you know, again, it's 4,500 people in the USPA. So, you know, the earth lines or some other people like Greg Seawalk, you know, that's plays in Seattle or Seattle, St. Louis, um, you know, they, they may not directly know your coach, although I'm sure the earth lines know, um, but they, they indirectly know people that went to Texas A&M. They know people that you played with against things like that. And, um, you know, it's just, it'd be the same thing as if, you know, I'm from a town of 4,500 people, you know, that's my hometown. And if, my son, who is not growing up, you know, in the hometown, we moved out of the hometown. If, you know, he graduates college, goes to the local diner in East Palestine, Ohio, and says, oh, I'm Justin Powers' son. Like, someone's going to be like, oh, yeah, like, they're going to carry on a conversation. Hopefully, they don't, like, throw something at him. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's just small, it's small town politics, you know, and um, there's there's good, there, there's the good side of it and the bad side of it. And, you know, your experience in St. Louis is, is definitely the, you know, the good side of it where you're able to, in Norway, you know, you're able to go to anywhere Polo's played in 80 some countries in the world. You know, um, I would say the place, the, the countries that Polo's not played are countries I don't ever want to go to. Um, so, and you could go there and, you know, within a few emails, a few phone calls, you know, be able to probably you know, have somebody saying, Oh, why didn't you bring your boots? You know, that's, that's the common thing. Like, Oh, you should have brought your boots. It's like, yeah. well, nah, <laughs> traveling with polo gear is kind of hard. So, um, you know, it's not something you, you want to do, but it's something polo people should do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to like, it is really as easy as, as, uh, once you're in the polo world, it's, it's as easy as just like making a few phone calls and saying, Hey, like I know Justin or Hey, Mm -hmm. I played with Justin earlier. He told me to call you and uh, see what's up, you know, and they're like, oh, okay, Justin, this, and then they like make the, yep. the Kevin Bacon, six degrees of separation, you know? Yeah. I've joked on the podcast before that in the question world, it's, it's not six degrees. It's like three degrees. Yeah. Everybody knows everyone. Right. <laughs> I have a but, funny story about that. I actually was sitting at a dinner party in, in Aiken, South Carolina. And um, there was, there was a Olympic level action. I mean, I, he competed in the Olympics, Olympic level three day eventer sitting next to me at dinner. And I asked him what he did for a living. And I had, I, mean, I had no clue who he was. Um, and he was kind of like, thought I was joking. And I was like, Oh, I'm, he's like, Oh, he's like, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I work for in polo and my family's been in the horse business. And he goes, yeah, we definitely live in different worlds. And I'm like, yep. So, um, but I always think about that. It's like, he probably thought I was an idiot. <laughs> I don't blame you. Uh, I, I don't know if I could like pick out a three-day adventure from the crowd, an Olympic three-day adventure from anywhere. I yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's, that's awesome. So how, how is, um, you know, from, from your perspective as the executive director of the USBA, like is, is your goal to grow the the youth programs so that the youth programs turn into adults playing polo. Like, how do you think of this uh, growth in a sustainable way? Right, you mentioned the the Good Hearts Law, um, which makes sense, of course. But I'm 
I'm curious, like how you sustain polo in, in, you know, in general, like how does that, how does that work? Yeah. So I think, uh, again, first off, I, I, you'll, you'll very rarely catch me in a professional setting, use the term growth. I'm always about development and, um, you know, again, development can include growth, but also can include, include air times of, you know, reduction and shrinkage and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, I, again, this doesn't apply just to the horse world. I think that's something that's very important that people kind of digest in their life is like, we're always so focused on, I'm going to get on a soapbox for a second here uh, on, a, on a different to- uh, topic, you know, the economy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> everyone talks about the economy and they're like, oh, well, unemployment's down and jobs and jobs, 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 jobs. You know, from from the dawn of time when man came out of the cave and dis- and discovered fire, we have been a job destroyer. You know, what used to take a thousand men or women to do now takes two. You know, what used to take in our lifetime, what used to take, you know, two people on by hand with a ledger on keeping books, you know, now takes AI and a software company. And so but I think one of the problems is, is as a society, we're always stuck on that. We need to, you know, we need more jobs, we need growth. Whereas we we almost need to really embrace that there is a thing called creative destruction. And that, you know, if you if we if we remove the economy from job creation, we'd be a lot better off on how we approach the economic policies of this country, this world. But anyways, that has nothing to do with um your your podcast about the equine industry um, actually does have something to do with it, which is one thing that there's a lot of things in the horse world that literally cannot be automated um, or at least are years and years away, shoeing horses, giving intravenous shots, um, you know, just knowing basic horsemanship. Like that's, it's, it's such a niche market that I don't think there's ever going to be the R and D budget to support automating a lot of that. But um, your question was, what, how do we focus on development or what's, what's the long-term plan? Um, you know, I think I, I always come back down to the clubs, you know, the clubs are the kind of the frontline salesmen of our sport. And if the clubs are on solid ground, then the sport and the future of the sport will be on solid ground. One of the things that comes up a lot in this is clubs really need to take it kind of put it in terms of investment terms clubs really need to take like kind of a long play approach with their development. And so I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it so many times. It's, it's almost, it's almost like muscle memory now for me. Clubs have a successful polo school or an instructor. They get a bunch of people in, you know, let's say they have a like an intro to polo clinic. They get 10 people there. They get lucky. And five of those people like, man, we want to take polo school they do polo school for six, eight weeks. They have this group together. These people now become friends. They're starting to buy horses and they're like, this is great. This is great. And they don't do another clinic until they need to, you know, like they don't replicate that process until they need to, because it's like, okay, well, these five people are playing, but we lost six because, you know, five people retired, one person moved away. And it's like, oh shoot, we should do a another clinic and get people. So it's almost like a a cycle. It's a cycle with a large gap in it. And what happens is, you know, is it takes time to cultivate and develop polo players and riders that have never seen a horse. So, you know, we almost need that continuous cycle of kind of feeding the pipeline of new players. Um, the best example of that 
so that's one thing is like kind of, you know, explaining that to clubs, showing that they, they really need to commit to, you know, developing players 365, you know, 24 seven. The other aspect of it is youth. Um, and a lot, you know, when I was a kid, I always said I was, I was 16 years old before I played a polo match with someone that was the same age as me. Mm-hmm. And I grew up playing polo. You know, that was the old school model was like, you know, I was the only, I was the only polo, polo player on the age 18 within like two and a half hours or something. Um, and I'm not complaining. I mean, I love it, but I grew up playing with adults. Um, and that was, you know, that's changed a lot over the years, which is great. Um, you know, there's still some people out there like, oh, well, youth polo, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, you know, you're just kind of subsidizing kids that are never going to buy horses. The reality is, is a kid that comes in at the age of 10 or 11 plays polo, they become an asset to a club very quickly um, because they they go from like, everyone's like, I don't want to play with these kids. They're they're small and they can't hit the ball. And then they hit that growth spurt. And now it's like, oh, I want to play with the kids because they're actually a lot better than you know, the 45 year old men and women that are starting and can't ride and can't hit the ball. And um, now you have, when you have those group of kids come in, those newer players, those adults are moving into a polo ecosystem with better players, albeit they're young, but they're better players. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so now they're moving into better polo and better polo makes better polo players. You know, if you put a new person in a bad polo or a low, uh, you know, a bad polo match, they're going to play down to that level of polo. Um, people will always play up to the level, you know, they're playing, or you hope so um, they will. So the best example of this, and I, you had her on, you know, you had a, a product of this on your podcast, Maryland Polo Club is, you know, they have Kelly Wells, um, Marissa's mom, they have Garrison Forrest. They have, they, you know, they're in close proximity to work to ride. They're close proximity to, you know, Virginia with a lot of youth polo. You know, they have for two generations now have been all in on youth polo to the point that they're adults. You know, a lot of their adult members started out playing youth polo at Maryland, you know, polo club or at Norland Farm or Garrison. So they have this homegrown group of people that can play polo. Um, they, you know, they're good horsemen and women. And that that makes for that 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 creates something where the club has you know a certain level of health in it that other clubs have to try to replicate via hiring a manager and instructor you know bringing in pros things like that Maryland Polo Club you know if, if tomorrow the economy crashes which if it does crash tomorrow then um don't blame me you know they they're, they're going to probably be all right cuz they have they got a good base and so that's what we've been, you know, really trying to push towards is like get the clubs on a good base and um and try to try to weather out the you know the the forthcoming economic downturns. Um I feel like we're in a good spot right now. I mean, I'm candidly my 401k is in pretty much cash cash equivalents right now. Uh you know, I think we're in a good spot right now to weather any economic downturns that may happen, which knock on wood aren't that bad that maybe 2008 the sport was not in that situation you know with the clubs so um because i mean what was the biggest change was it this focus on youth development over the last 10 years i think it's just getting the clubs to kind of i don't think it's just um youth i don't think it's just one component um over the others i think it's 
a lot getting the clubs to look inward and, and figure out like, you know, Hey, we need to think about, you know, I hate to use this term, but you know, I, I won't use it. They need to think about planning strategically for the future uh, instead of sh- strategic planning and just kind of like understand it. Like, okay, like, you know, the baby boomers are getting older, so we need to figure out who's going to be the next generation of players. And um, again, at the end of the day, it takes people to play polo. And so if I want to play polo in Pittsburgh, I have a vested interest to see, you know, new people come in and kids play and stuff. Um, because if I don't, it's going to die. And, um, you know, now I'm traveling three hours to play polo instead of, you know, playing in my backyard, basically. Totally. So. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really interesting. It, it sounds like if you could give blanket advice to polo clubs across the, the U S it would be to focus in on that base, right? Like develop the base so that there's always like a constant healthy churn of players coming mm-hmm. in. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, that's that's one good way to put it is like the churn. Um, that's definitely an interesting way I'll be using that in the future. Uh, you know, focusing on that and then also just getting getting new people involved. Um, you know, again, we talked about horsemanship a little bit and like, you know, you're probably not going to want uh, somebody that started playing polo or first sat on a horse at the age of 45. You probably don't want to elect them as like the equine welfare rep of the club. <laughs> but if they're a lawyer or they're run a business, they definitely can be in charge of like organizing, you know, club meetings, scheduling, stuff like that. Um, there, and, and the more you get people, new people involved in polo, um, you know, the, the more buy-in they have, the more they kind of have an ownership aspect of it. Um, personally, you know, there's a term in the USPA, we have what's called a, a club delegate, which is basically the conduit between the USPA and the club. And like, for years, the club delegate traditionally has always been like the oldest ranking polo player at the club, which nine times out of 10 is the last person you want to be like in charge of responding to emails and, and uh, like sp- spreading news about the club. Cause they're like, you know, they've been there, done it, you know, they've been too involved, I guess is one way to put it. Um, so that's, you know, that's the other thing is it's like, try to get the new people involved. Um, you know, they, they have, they have strengths, they have, you know, abilities that um, they can bring to the table. Again, they might just be learning the, the horsemanship side of it, but um, they can definitely, you know, add value in other areas. Totally. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thanks. Uh, one thing I, I definitely want to touch on is uh, your history with, with horses. And like you, you mentioned, you started, you're a third generation polo player. Uh, you were in horse racing for a little bit. So like, what's your story? Like, how did, how, my story and horses. Um, yeah, okay, so horses, yeah. It, it kind of starts, uh, it starts with my, my grandfather, um, Paul, Paul powers, PJ powers. And, uh, so he was in high school, obviously, well, not so obvious, but he was in high school during world war two. And, um, the club that my home club is called Darlington polo club, which is probably, it's like infamous in the polo world a little bit. It's probably, in my opinion, one of the most unique polo fields in the in the world um, because it's a dirt field. We call it a skin field. Um, it's smaller. We play under the lights. It's, it was the first lighted polo field in the world, 1937. Uh, I'll keep saying that until someone can prove me uh, wrong. Uh, and in the during World War II, um, because of people going to, off to war, you know, a lot of clubs, including I think St. Louis, they they shut down completely um, for years, number of years. 
um, in World War during World War II, due to players going off to fight in the war and gas rationing. Um, at the time, there was like I think five or six clubs within like an hour drive of Darlington, and the family that started the club basically said, "We have a lot of property, so let's all these clubs around the area." Akron, Ohio, Cleveland, Canton, Ohio, um, Youngstown, bring your, bring your horses, keep them at our club and um, then just travel in and play when you can. And so our club actually played continuously through the war by, again, some of the stuff we talked about earlier, just by, you know, the fraternal nature of polo. And um, they hired high school kids to take care of the horses. And so my grandfather was in high school him and uh, two of his best friends got hired to take care of the horses. My grandfather actually played high school football on the polo field. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and so he, you know, he did that through high school out of high school. He, I think he took one semester of college and um, probably maybe had a few more beers than he did classwork. Um, And then he joined the military and went away for, during Korea for three years and literally like he moved back to Darlington PA town of 200 people in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, he married my grandmother and bought a house and bought a polo pony and started playing polo again. Um, at that time, actually kind of, this is all going to come full circle at the time, the club was pretty healthy and had a lot of members. So they, they didn't really have, um, spots for new players on their quote unquote squad. So my grandfather, his two best friends, and a couple other guys started another club or team, so to speak, and they would play, you know, on different nights and stuff. And um, around that same time, like my grandfather worked at a brick, he was a, he ran a, he was a heavy equipment operator in a brickyard. Um, At that time, he basically said he wanted to become a farmer uh, and went to horseshoeing school and, um, in Michigan, at Michigan State, and bought property right across the border in Ohio. Bought a farm. Didn't know anything about farming really, uh, and basically started a horse farm. He then quickly realized that um, farming is not as lucrative as people um, make it sound to be, and uh, he started training racehorses, shoeing horses. The moral of the story is, and there's an old saying they say, you know, behind every farmer there's a there's a lady that works in town. Um, kind of saying that like, you know, farmers don't make any money and their wives are the bread earners. So my grandma was a school teacher and, you know, we all kind of referred to that farm as PJ's farm, but it was definitely Toots's farm. And she's still living actually. She's 90. I don't know. She's over 90. Um, and so he started training racehorses and shoeing horses and playing polo. And, um, he had four, four boys, actually my great grandfather then started training racehorses as well. He kind of got into it. Um, my, my, uh, grandparents had four boys. Um, obviously one of which is my dad, all four of them played polo. Uh, my dad kind of was the one that was all in on it. So, um, I don't know. If, I mean, honestly, I don't even know if he finished high school to be honest with you. Uh, he started shooting, he did an apprenticeship shooting horses at the track and, um, started playing professionally. And, uh, you know, de- my dad's I don't want to say claim to fame, but his, you know, thing he focused on mostly was taking horses off the track and retraining them for polo and selling them as, as prospects. I think he's, yeah, I'd say he probably started doing that about 78. 
Um, and then he was active in that up until about uh, three years ago. Uh, so, um, you know, he played, he got to five goals, um, was a, you know, farrier. And so I kind of was born into it. You know, I picked up the, the green horse thing kind of at a young age, just by, you know, necessity and um, actually learned to shoe a few years ago just to, you know, cause it's kind of one of those, like, it's a lot it's a lot cheaper to shoot your own horses if you yeah. if you do it well, um, which I, I'm not terrible at. Um, it just takes me a while to do, and that's that's our story. I mean, we we've been getting horses off the racetrack for, I mean, how do you know, Gideon? I'd say if somebody held my feet to the fire, I would estimate that probably 700 horses off the track over my dad's career at some point of went into polo, um, you know, plus or minus a hundred, I would say. Um, and you know, that's, that's just what we've always done. You know, it's kind of like, um, that's kind of our polos, our, our polos, green horse polo. Um, now we, I'll go play competitively and my sister will play as well, but you know, we still like, that's, I'd say our, my sister play, like I said, my sister plays and I'd say both of us, you know, we enjoy playing farm polo, green horses, you know, keep away, riding them in the round pen, you know, talking about this horse is doing this, what should we do? Switch a bit, switch, switch a bit, switch, you know, training, stuff like that. So. So there's a, that's, that's awesome. First of all, I think that's, that's like a real, that's a really cool story. And um, one thing you mentioned just now was uh, like this, if, if this horse is doing X, like, should we switch a bit? I, I had this thought, this question that I, I wanted to see your opinion on was, there's this trend right now on the like dressage perhaps, or I don't know of the, the bitless writing, right? Like there's, yeah. Do you think that'll ever get to polo? <laughs> I mean, I've seen, I've seen some horses go in like hackmores, you know, bitless hackamores. It's usually because they have some, you know, they got a cut on their tongue or something. Um, I don't know. There, there needs to be a reality TV show and all equestrian disciplines called bit wars because <laughs> you know, that's the, like, it's, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of, and, and I, I know, I know this much about bidding a horse. Yeah. And if you know that, if you know that little, I know. Well, that. that's what I say. I know this much compared to people that know it well. And, and this much is like all the way up here compared to what most everyone knows. Yeah. But I, I kind of feel like Bidding, there's there's a time and place on changing bits, but I think part of it is a little bit of like the instant gratification of oh this horse is doing something, let's just change the bit and see what happens. Whereas, you know, if a horse is throwing its head in a bit, like you know, you sh people should really be running down through a checklist. Like you know, had did you check its teeth? You know, is there is there you know if their teeth are good, then okay, does it have does it have some injury? Does it have you know a, you know has it been adjusted by a chiropractor? You know, do you have it in a gag bit and it really doesn't like pull pressure? It may have nothing to do with the actual mouthpiece. It could be that, you know, the, the mechanism of um, the bits. And, you know, I, personally, I just feel like there's like there's people who own a lot of bits now, you know, and there's like, <laughs> I mean, you go to the tax stores, there's like thousands of variations of every bit. It's like you could you can you can get lost down a rabbit hole pretty quick. And, and again, I mean, there, there is a time and place for that. I think the best thing advice, if I had to give advice on bidding a horse is first off, the bits are in the hands. Um, you know, 
I'm a big guy. And the way I bid a horse and I play a horse is a lot different than the way my sister plays or my dad played. And so, you know, I can play it. My sister and I will talk about this all the time. I'll play a horse in a rubber pelham and straight reins and it'll go great. And she'll get on and it's running off with her. Well, I'm a lot bigger and stronger and she has a lot lighter hands um, than I do. And so that's the first thing. The bid is in the hands, um, especially in polo. And the second thing is ask, ask somebody, you know, ask somebody getting back to that fraternal nature, you know, some of the, you know, really, really, really good horsemen and women in polo. And I think of people like, you know, that are still active. I think somebody like Joey Casey, whose, you know, father has like five horses in the hall of fame or something. And he still runs a club in, you know, in Florida. If I called Joey up and said, Hey, I have a horse, you know, doing one-legged pirouettes while whistling, you know, a tune, he'd be like, Oh, I had a horse that did that like 10 years ago. You know, like there's, there, are, there is no like new experience in, no. in polo. Cause these guys have been, especially guys have been doing it forever. I mean, they've, they've sat on thousands of horses, you know, and that's in the U S in Argentina, they, you know, some of the pilotos and stuff, they probably sat on 10,000 horses, you know? And so, um, so that's usually like, before I get into the bidding on horses, I usually like, okay, let me call someone that, um, actually an A&M grad, um, helped me on one horse, uh, Craig Frazier, who, um, I work with his, his wife, Amy, and I had a horse. that was like, you know, just really over flexing young one, you know, he walked over and, and Craig's not somebody to come over and tell you, give you advice. You kind of have to ask him a little bit. He's a little reserved. And so I said, Craig, man, I have to pick your brain on this. And, uh, and he like, literally when I said, I need to pick your brain, I swear to, I swear, like he walked to his tack room, he came over with a, with a Waterford mouthpiece gag. He was like, try her in this. And, <laughs> and like, that was a, that was a pivotal, pivotal moment with that yeah. horse. Like she started like carrying her head a little better, wasn't over flexing. Now the thing about horses and, you know, you know, everyone listening to this knows I could keep fighting that battle with like, you know, for another six months and all I'm doing is just creating, you know, a, I don't want to say a toxic situation, but I'm, I'm not improving the situation there. It's, you know, you don't want to fight with horses, um, especially when it comes to, you know, a piece of metal in their mouth. And so, you know, I'm always very appreciative that Craig went over and grabbed that bit and handed it to me. And, you know, the mayor went on and ended up selling her, um, but I don't, I don't have her anymore, but she's, she's an awesome mare. And, um, and she could have not been an awesome mare probably if I was a little stubborn and not, you know, a little too proud to ask for advice. So. Moral of the story is if you feel like you need help, you should ask for it. <laughs> uh, Fran, Fran Lebrowitz, who was a com- comedic writer. I don't know if she's still living. She had a saying that said, uh, you know, think before you speak read before you think mm. and you know everyone's hard to think before you speak but like that kind of applies to horsemanship too is like think about something before you say something or or do something but like educate yourself on it before you think about it um and and i think that's again that's that's something that is whatever discipline people are in you know they can be in horse racing they can be polo cross is like you know, the best way to educate yourself and a lot of this stuff is pick up the phone and call someone that's done it before that you trust and um, ask their advice. And, you know, they may, they may redirect you to somebody else. And that's where this kind of comes full circle with, you know, you might be playing a little bit of a 
you know, telephone game, but, um, you know, again, using the example I said about Joey Casey, if, Joe, if I have a horse doing something that Joey hasn't seen, first off, he, I mean, it would be like a medical marvel. Um, you know, he's probably going to be like, it's going to drive him nuts until he can be like, hey, call, call this person or call this, this, yeah. you know, it might not just be in a polo discipline. It might be something, you know, they're from Oklahoma. It might be something where he's like, hey, I know this cowboy that, you know, does this like, call him or try, you know, ask him for advice or something or tell him I called, you know, and, um, or tell him, tell him that I told you to call. So. Totally. Okay. Justin, um, I want to be mindful of the time and I have a mm-hmm. few rapid fire questions that I want to, yep. I want to get oh, to. Man. Um, so the first one that I want, I want to ask you is like, what kind of, um, what is a trend you're seeing in the equine industry that you feel everyone should be aware of, or at least be thinking about maybe more, uh, specifically to polo a trend in the equine industry like a positive trend or yeah uh trend in the equine industry i think people are i think people are really taking a lot more time to think about um you know things like turnout and giving horses rest and and you know you know instead of injecting and doing this like hey let's turn them out let them let them be a horse again so mm-hmm. that's one thing is kind of giving them time. Yeah. I'm not, no, is there like an innovation? Do you feel like there's innovation happening in the polo world? Like in, or, or do you feel like it's one of the, it's a, like a old, old sport that'll kind no, of. No, I mean, I mean, we're cloning polo ponies. Uh, in fact, actually there's a documentary that's on YouTube. It's called, I think, uh, horses and sport or something. Um, I'll send you the link to it. There, Tommy Wayman, who's, you know, t- was 10 goals, one of the best American polo players. He literally was talking about cloning horses in 1981. Whoa. Uh, yeah. And I mean, t- his son, Toby is the announcer for, um, so I'll send, I'll text you the link to the video. Awesome. You know, a lot of people I talk like, you know, Cambiasso started cloning horses or something like, yes, he was the first one to do it. But, um, you know, like Tommy Wayman was talking about it, you know, 40 some years ago. So, uh, you know, I, no, I think, I think there's, I think polo is a great, um, split spot for innovation because, you know, we don't have, it's such a small community that we kind of need innovation to try to get a competitive advance, uh, uh, advantage. So I think that's why you see a lot more cloning and you see, you know, you know, embryos were common in polo, I think a lot well before, you know, other question disciplines, I might be completely wrong on that, but I'm going yeah. with it. Um, interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, a few more. Do you have a favorite horse you've ever ridden? Favorite horse I ever I've ever ridden. I have yes, I have two. Uh uh the best horse I ever stepped foot three. I have three. Best horse I ever stepped foot on our farm was Iron Nina. Uh my dad bought her off the racetrack um when she was three. I think five people sat on her back ever in her life. Um I was luckily lucky enough to um play her once. And I know what she meant to my dad in his career. I didn't think she was that good of a horse because I didn't understand what a good horse was. I was like 12. Um, but it's just cool to be able to be, you know, on her, sit on her. Um, Flashy Liz is a horse I grew up riding when I was a kid. My dad traded her for a 1986 Volvo 240 station wagon. And uh, I was livid. Um, I was probably on eight or nine years old and we had, we have a picture of me riding her at my parents' house. Um, she's off the track. 
And then uh, Stormy, which was an Argentine mayor that my dad's main sponsor got from Martina Strada. Um, and she was the horse that really kind of, I learned how to, my, my dad's sponsor didn't get along with her too well. So I grew up kind of playing her. Um, two of the worst wrecks I ever had in my entire life um, happened on her. Uh, but she was just, she was solid. And I just always liked playing her. And, um, you know, one quick story about her is she, when the 32nd horn would blow at the end of the chucker, yeah. um, you had to kind of like have a whip and just kind of tap her on the shoulder. Because if you didn't, it, wherever you were on the field, she would just start running towards the trailer. Oh, she knew. Um, <laughs> yeah. She knew what 30 seconds was. And she, I mean, you would be on the right side of the field going towards goal. And as soon as that 30 seconds, if you weren't paying attention, by the end of the run, you'd be literally over by the trailers. Um, so she was always kind of cool. She she lived to be like 37 years old or something. Um, oh, she, was, yeah. she was a tough old mare. Yeah. So those three. That's great. Do you have a favorite place you've ever ridden? Uh, Newport, Rhode Island is my my favorite place to play play polo. Um, buddy of mine, Dan and Agnes Keating run it. It's, you know, it's the large, it's the largest polo crowd in the U S um, you know, Sunday or Saturday after Saturday. It's pretty cool. And we get to take a Pittsburgh team up there. So I'm a hardcore, you know, Steelers, Penguins, Pirates fan. So, um, you know, it's cool to kind of experience all that. That's awesome. Um, okay. Knowing what you know now, what's one piece of advice you'd give your younger self? Um, one piece of advice I give my younger self, I would have, I would have went and probably spent more time with other people, uh, riding. Um, my, my dad, I mean, I, I love my dad to death and, um, my dad's not a teacher. He's just one of those people that can, he knows how to do it. Um, and so, you know, his, his way of teaching was like, well, like you've saw me do it a hundred times, like, go do it. And I'm, I'm kind of like, I live on YouTube. Um, like I, I'll, I'll go, I'll watch videos on the French Indian war until three in the morning. Cause I want to learn about it. And, um, and so that's one thing I, I think when I was a kid, I should have probably went and found somebody that had a little bit more of the same like approach to learning. Um, and again, it's nothing against my dad. Just that's how that's that was his approach was, um, you know, just go do it, you know, and don't ask questions. You'll figure it out, you know? So. That's awesome. And the last question is uh, what makes horses so special to you? So uh, this is something actually I, I, I share with my wife who's not in a question. She just started riding as, you know, when she started riding a few years ago, she made the comment that, uh, you know, she's like, wow, when you're on a horse, you don't really think about anything else. Um, and you know, it's just, your mind's like clear. And that's, that's something in today's day and age is like, that's, that's a unicorn, you know, to be able to say like, I'm not thinking about anything else in life than not thinking about anything. I mean, just kind of reacting and you're kind of, you know, figuring out, you know, what the horse is doing, anticipating things. And so, um, riding young horses, you know, not in a round pen, I, I kind of get a little, not claustrophobic, but I get a little like too pragmatic, I guess is one way to put it in the round pen, but like just take them out on the polo field and just like, you know, short working them and letting them, you know, stretch out, do figure eights is like, I mean, I think that's probably the, the best in my, I mean, not that I have mental health issues, but, uh, it's the best thing for my mental health that I yeah. can do. Um, and you probably don't have mental health issues because you have yeah outlet, right? Like there, I mean, not saying it's one of the Yeah, other. no, 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 no. I, I get you saying like, you know, um, 
and you know, I have a, I have a one-year-old son now. And, and uh, so it's changed a little bit for me too, is like, he go, he lights up when he sees the horses. Um, and so, you know, this summer we're probably going to be, you know, starting to indoctrinate him on, you know, that same approach. It's like, you know, if you're having a bad day or something like go to the farm, ride some horses. But the thing is, especially with young horses is like, I, I, I ran into this when I was a kid. Like if you're having a bad day and you get on a horse and you're trying to train that horse, like you, you, you want to go, go ride one of the old ones. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> that, like, don't ride a bad or ride. Don't ride a young horse when you're having a bad day, you know, unless you like ride one of them and then get on it. And actually it's something that um, this is actually something my dad taught me is we used to have groups of young horses off the track, you know, six, eight, 10 at a time, you know, four towards the end of his career. Uh, and he always said, don't ride the worst, the tough horse last because you're always, you're tired. You want to be done. You know, you're like, it's, it's usually getting dark out or it's getting ready to rain or something. So you're always going into that, like kind of upset, you know, like not upset, but like, you're, 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 you're looking for an excuse for that horse to give you a bad ride. And so, um, so that was what he always says, like, don't ride the bad ones last, ride them in the middle, you know, ride a good one or one that you look forward to riding first and then work a bad one and then finish on something that's, um, and I, I actually, that's kind of how I do my chucker list when I play, although mm-hmm. mine is usually like play, uh, play the least worst horse first and then play your worst horse second and then hope that like the other horses have like, you know, their best day ever. Um, as, as much as I talk about horsemanship and stuff like that, um, you know, economics wise, my horses are probably not at the level that, um, they should be. That's something that I can always work on. So (laughs) that's a good point. Um, well, Justin, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I know we went a little over, but what a what a conversation! And I feel like we could have gone uh, another hour if you wanted. So, uh, thank hey, you. Hey, no so problem. Much. Get in anytime, man. And um, I look forward to um, getting out to St. Louis. And-